Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us! Welcome to the Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Keith Phipps. Tasha Robinson. And... Genevieve Kosky. Here on the Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, The City of Angels is rife with sex scandals, political conspiracy, and murder. We have the scoop, but it's off the record, on the QT, and strictly hush-hush. That is, unless you're a Next Picture Show subscriber. Genevieve. What are we pitching to our listeners? This week, we're visiting the dark underbelly of Tinseltown, where dreams of glamour and celebrity die ignominiously outside the spotlight. Our pairing brings us into the twisted world of L.A. Noir, courtesy of two period pieces that follow Byzantine plots to the depths of human depravity. Curtis Hansen's L.A. Confidential and Shane Black's The Nice Guys have a lot of things in common. Both feature Russell Crowe and Kim Basinger, both cast a jaundiced eye on the film industry, and both uncover conspiracies with far-reaching implications. But their approach is quite different. Based on James Elroy's novel, L.A. Confidential deals seriously with corruption within the Los Angeles Police Department, following the investigation of a mass murder at a coffee shop in 1953. The Nice Guys is a buddy action comedy set in 1977 that also follows mismatched partners, one a private eye, the other a hired goon, who look into a young woman's mysterious disappearance. The two movies aren't connected in tone, but they certainly are in spirit. Yes, uh, L.A. Confidential and The Nice Guys are both movies about the past, but they're also born of a deep affection for the atmosphere, style, and municipal rot of dime store fiction and noir stories about Los Angeles. On today's show, we'll focus on the tabloid sleaze and police corruption that inform L.A. Confidential. Then on the second half, we'll contrast it with the retro buddy comedy of The Nice Guys. Tasha, Genevieve, Keith, let's come to Los Angeles. Where the sun shines bright, the beaches are wide and inviting, and the orange groves stretch as far as the eye can see. as far as the eye can see. There are jobs aplenty, and land is cheap. Every working man can have his own house. And inside every house, a happy all-American family. You can have all this, and who knows? You could even be discovered, become a movie star, or at least see one. Life is good in Los Angeles. It's paradise on Earth. <laughs> That's what they tell you anyway. Because they're selling an image. They're selling it through movies, radio, and television. In the hit show Badge of Honor, the L.A. cops walk on water as they keep the city clean of crooks. Yep, 
you'd think this place was the Garden of Eden. But there's trouble in paradise. So what is L.A. Noir? To me, it's fundamentally about understanding the darker forces at play in a city that the world knows for its glamorous movie stars and red carpet premieres. It's about the characters who step off the bus in search of fame and disappear into a cesspool of degradation and murder. It's also about how the city of Los Angeles operates outside the spotlight, in places where no one is looking. It usually starts with something simple, like a missing persons case or a murder, and uncovers much more sweeping revelations about the city's nefarious quarters of power, whether it's City Hall or the Los Angeles Police Department. James Elroy knows this territory better than anyone, but the challenge of adapting his 1990 novel L.A. Confidential, or really any piece of L.A. noir fiction starting with Raymond Chandler, is sorting through its intricacies. Among the film's many achievements, writer Brian Helgeland and director Curtis Hansen's adaptation deserves praise for streamlining Elroy's book into a cohesive thriller that's suitably dense but easy to follow. L.A. Confidential starts by establishing the corruption and racism within the LAPD. Guy Pearce stars as Detective Lieutenant Ed Exley, a politically savvy young lawman whose by-the-book style quickly makes him a pariah in the department. Russell Crowe plays Bud White, a hot-headed cop who represents the brutality and insularity that Exley is fighting against. Kevin Spacey is Jack Vincennes, a slick detective who trades collars for tabloid cash and is more interested in advising a dragnet-like cop show than doing his job. All three men are roped into a bloody scene at a diner that leaves many dead, including White's ex-partner. The crime is initially pinned on three African-American men with long rap sheets, but the more Exley, White, and Vincennes poke around, the more it seems like the perpetrators are closer to home. L.A. Confidential also stars David Strathairn as a rich developer who runs an escort service around prostitutes who look like movie stars, and Kim Basinger is one of those prostitutes, a Veronica Lake lookalike who attracts both White and Exley. The film works on two related fronts, one as a rip from the tabloid story of Hollywood Vice, the other as a deep investigation into the systemic corruption that plagues the police department. It may take place in the 50s, but Elroy and the makers of L.A. Confidential are speaking to the world of 1990 and 1997 respectively, and the story still plays in 2016. So gang, let's start there. What was it like uh, to revisit L.A. Confidential now, uh, nearly 20 years after it was made? Tasha Robinson? You know, uh, when I first saw L.A. Confidential, it it just didn't connect with me much. There was just there was something about it that it probably had more to do than anything with like where I was in my life at the time, like what kind of storytelling I was interested in. And this is a film that's just steadily grown on me over the years. And rewatching it is it's it becomes more of a pleasure every single time I watch it. There are just there's so many dramatic moments in this movie where you know everything that's going through somebody's head just via a look. There's so many moments where the penny drops and it's so tightly put together. I had to go look up alternate versions of this thing because I remember this as a like a fairly slow and wandering three hour movie. Mm-hmm. It's no, much nope. tighter than that. It's much better put together than that. And it just it really flows and all of the pieces fit together so neatly. Whenever you've got like this shaggy dog style uh, storytelling, this this L.A. style noir where there are a whole bunch of different pieces and they initially don't seem to be related and then they come together. It's really important that when they come together, they fit well. L.A. Confidential is just, it's a watertight movie for me by the end. So many different things happen. So many different characters get their own little arcs. But by the end, all the pieces fit together. And it's just, it's a real pleasure watching that happen. Yeah, as you say, it's just watching the threads kind of get drawn together. I'm making a gesture with my hands here. Uh, (laughs) But it, it it is one of the great pleasures of the film. It is so nicely plotted. And, and it's such 
it's interesting because it is a simplification of Elroy's book. Mm -hmm. And it is in many ways a watering down of Elroy's sensibility. And yet it feels like an, it's, it's still the spirits there. You know, it is Elroy as adapted for an R-rated 1997 audience and, and what uh, they could handle. And, and it's, done, it's very nicely done that way as well. Yeah, I was telling Scott as we were setting up, like, I did not remember watching this movie the first time through. I was pretty young in 1997. And I remember scenes, but nothing about how the story really came together. I remembered none of the details of the mystery. So it was really a treat, like watching it come together and being able to follow it. Because a lot of times with like twisty, turny, conspiracy mysteries, I find myself kind of going with the flow and accepting that it'll all come together in the end. But this is one where I like understood every beat that was happening. I understood the character motivations the whole way through. And it felt really modern, you know, to uh, to go back to your uh, question of how it plays in 2016. Like, with the exception of, you know, some changes in Russell Crowe's physique, I could <laughs> easily believe that this movie, in terms of just its look and its themes, was made in the last few years it, it and that part of that is by virtue of it being a period piece mm-hmm. and a well-executed period piece i think it's possible for period movies to look stale over time but this one certainly doesn't and one thing i appreciated also is i was looking forward to revisiting it but i was worried that it was not as good as i remembered it but if anything it's better than i remember it because i it settled my mind as russell crowe playing like the tough guy and guy pierce playing the outstanding guys but guy pierce's character is a creep i mean yeah. he's 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 you know <laughs> Being morally upright is his angle, you know. It's 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 what he uses to maneuver through the system, you know. It's 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 his it's his shtick. So it's his device, not so much as uh, his you know sort of an innate virtue he has. I, I found myself thinking during this movie about something Tasha brings up a lot about how characters needing to have a code, and it not not necessarily being about you know a, a greater moral alignment an ethos an ethos shout out to david chen for getting that reference (laughs) yes you know all these these three main cop characters you know none of them is as as you say at at exley is kind of a creep in his way Mm -hmm. and bud white is an enforcer but he also has this white knight streak that is both admirable and problematic and you know vincennes is the word well i think when push comes to shove he he wants he finds he finds he's not as corrupt as he thought he was. Yeah, and, and he's a good cop. Or like, at least, if nothing else, he is, he's capable. Because I, I think what becomes really important is that he is capable of recognizing when his choices have had horrible consequences mm-hmm. for someone else. Yeah. When somebody else is... Because he, he kind of has a no harm, no foul. You know, you committed a crime and I caught you and benefited from it. Like it, You're yeah, talking about Jack Vincennes. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's sort of transactional, but, you know, you got what you deserve. But when his, his actions directly result in somebody's death in the death of somebody who didn't deserve it and who he felt a sympathy for in the death of the mentalist (laughs) Simon Baker I didn't know that was Simon Baker playing 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 Matt Matt the movie star right he looks so young yeah what's so interesting about the interplay of those three characters is how their individual codes kind of butt up against each other and it keeps any one of them from being you know too easily delineated as the hero or the bad guy in a system where systemic corruption is the point it's about how all they all meet in the middle in a, a really interesting way. They're all changing so much over the course of the story that they come together in a, in a specific place. And I think one of the things that makes LA Confidential such a pleasure is that those changes are affected so naturally. You know, they're so believably drawn out of the events, out of the choices they make in 
the the events that result. And I, like none of them feel forced. Keith, I do think that you're underrating uh, Exley just yeah. a little bit. Uh, like I totally agree with you that he's a mm. creep, but I don't think that his ethos is is just about maneuvering through the oh, system. Oh no, but it, he does find that it is useful to him in that. He's way, politically too. savvy. Yeah, he's very yeah. savvy. Yeah, and and he he will bend when when necessary. I mean, I like I mean I like all these characters. I like all these flawed, horrible characters. Uh, ultimately, but uh, but I mean, um, I think in the beginning, what we see him doing is not so much taking advantage of his ethics in order to get ahead as working around his ethics in, in a place where he sees it like briefly to his advantage as opposed to his disadvantage because mm-hmm. it's mostly his disadvantage it, it his ethics put him in a situation where nobody listens to him nobody trusts him and nobody likes him he's very smug when he sees a way to get around people by following his ethics but i think in the in the beginning at least those ethics are incredibly important to him they're mm-hmm. how he defines himself and his life and watching him let those slide for really good reasons because they come up against the real world is not a character arc we see very often in movies. Right. Yeah, that character's whole arc is about making the perception people have of him as a maneuver and a climber work for him. And it it's kind of ingenious. I and think. at the same time he's gotta he's gotta supersede it. Yeah. Because nobody wants to trust him and nobody wants to work with him. And he has to convince them that he's actually trying to do something meaningful. And I think it also underlines for us immediately at the beginning how impossible it is to do your job mm. properly uh, uh to, i mean because he if you're you know let's let's take him at his word and he's i think we can take him at, at his word at the beginning he's trying to do things by the book he's got his little his glasses on and he's trying to follow the rules and uh it just doesn't work out he becomes a pariah um and so we can see really clearly that in this that is the thing the film has going for it um is is, is clarity just how an entire system can be corrupt and can corrupt the people who participate in it. Here's the other thing about that character that I was thinking about as the movie ended and there's this huge shootout at the motel and pretty much everyone's dead. Yeah. Um, and Exley is kind of telling a story of what happened and I'm thinking like, there's no one to back this up. Like if mm. he wasn't already established as this upstanding moral righteous person, like, yeah, we get the reveal at the end that Bud made it. But, you know, at that point, it's like, there's no one to back up his story. Like, you know, he could be making all this up, but because he has been established as this person who is by the book and does what he's supposed to do, come hell or high water, Yeah, he can cash those chips. Yeah. Hmm. Um, I actually want to kind of go back to something to the very beginning and ask you, Keith Phipps, a question, because you've read this Mm -hmm. book. I have. Yeah, it's been a while. It's been a while. Well, well, that's on the theme of L.A. Noir and what our understanding of L.A. Noir is that it is a bit more casual, a little bit, you know, lopes around a little bit more, is, is, is got a different pace to it. But that, in the streamlining of L.A. Confidential, some of that stuff was cut away. So what, what is there stuff missing from this film? I mean, it, it, that you that you missed that were, was part of El, Elroy's the, world that isn't part of this one? That I missed? No, not not really. And like I said, it's been a while since I've read this particular James Elroy. He's, he's so tough to adapt mm-hmm. uh, because to do a really straightforward adaptation would ha- make characters even less likable than our, our heroes in this in this movie, uh, even more racist than, than the world in which we have with a lot more uh, racist. Uh, slurs uh, flying around and where you had to kind of weigh you know whatever good these people do like you know are they even are they in any way good people <laughs> you know it's it's uh yeah it's, it's it would be tough tough to do which is why but i do think it does get the spirit of that really well and not in a way to diminish this at all i think it's it's a brilliant success as a film 
yeah, I mean, if, if but if we, um, I guess, back away further, I mean, if we're talking L.A. Noir this week, uh, maybe we should define our terms. What what is it? Uh, what what separates it from other noir tinged uh, movies? Well, I mean, a lot of things. One of the, I think, one of the big things for me about L.A. Noir is just the the sense of sprawl, the sense of of scale and size. I think L.A. Noirs tend to feel very sprawling, and it's kind of a reflection of the fact that the L.A. is just a humongous city, mm-hmm. and it encompasses so many different cultural types and ethnic types, and like financial levels, de- you know, degrees of success, status levels, status levels environments like you've got you've got the mountains and you've got the ocean and you've got uh you know these sort of beautiful sun-kissed streets and you've got slums like any kind of environment you want you can have so there there tends to be this sort of feeling of both like dealing with the high and low and their contrast with each other and just (laughs) doing an awful lot of like gumshoe traveling around to get from place to place (laughs) in a lot of these cities and and in a pre-freeway era or we we see the Mm -hmm. is it the 405 or the 10 being Santa Monica being built. I don't know what its number is. Yeah, and that, from LA. <laughs> and you know that kind of plays into the sense of sprawl. And and that specific detail made me think of of all things Who Framed Roger Rabbit, oh, which absolutely. also has some uh, definite LA noir uh, influences in it there. But you know, I think the big thing, and I'm not super well versed in LA noir, so I'm you know might be showing my ignorance here. But you know, Scott, you kind of laid out in the beginning the whole idea of the seedy underbelly of a glamorous mm-hmm. town and you know i mean this is tinseltown and even when you are dealing with characters who have no direct relationship to hollywood that's not the case in la confidential but for the most part it's the case in the nice guys which we'll get into that aura of glamour in hollywood still informs everything that's going on there and makes just adds a little extra level of sleaze to that performative glamour, uh, hiding something much darker and slimier and grimier. Well, and then and then you have you know these people who are, you just didn't make it. You know, this is outside mm. of what we we yeah. see. You have the, these characters like the Mentalist, <laughs> uh, Matt, Matt Reynolds is his name in the in the movie, and then and also this prostitution ring that is populated by lookalikes. And so these these are you know never wases who are on the fringes of. Hollywood who are getting into all sorts of trouble, you know, th- these fictions exist to shine the spotlight on them. The other thing that, that interests me too, uh, this is true a little bit with, uh, we talked about the freeway here and then Roger Rabbit, um, and we're going to talk a little bit about the nice guys and the conspiracies there. Everything kind of ends up leading to City Hall. <laughs> oh, yeah. Point. And there's always some kind of a thing where you just start with just a nugget of a case and it just reveals a whole world to you. I mean, and LA Confidential certainly reveals corruption within the LAPD, uh, systemic corruption. And we'll see in, in The Nice Guys, there's a big conspiracy involving uh, smog and uh, the, the auto industry, the porn industry, and the very convoluted uh, story there. Uh, you know, in, Inherent Vice has got the same thing. You can see that the city changing. Uh, Chinatown, Chinatown. F- quite famously, um, with, with water. That's not just another interesting connection between all all of these movies is that it does go to the, these shadows, it goes to these small places, it goes to this underworld, but it always kind of leads back to something much, much larger and bigger than any of these characters can really control. I mean, they, they just kind of get run over by it. And I think something that, that really comes out of that is one of the other things that defines L.A. Noir for me is in whoever the protagonists are, there's often this sense of of weariness, of cynicism and exhaustion and kind of seen it all, uh, like a feeling that institutions can't be trusted, the center can't hold. There's just, there's an awful lot of like, you go back to like Raymond Chandler or like Billy Wilder characters and there it's always someone who has just been around too long 
and seen too much and knows that like all of Tinseltown's promises are lies and, and has this like this exhaustion. And that feels like a very different sense than, say, a Southern Gothic mystery or like a New York. I like I, when I think of New York City mysteries, I always go back to like Nick and Nora Charles and kind of like high society and like tight hmm. insular, like elitist kind of environments or or slums like or one chamber, or the other pieces and things like that. Yeah. And just a very different sense of of brightness and sharpness in like life among the glitterati. Whereas with L.A., it's much more likely to have, as Genevieve pointed out, like that that feeling of performative sleaze. Speaking of Nick and Nora Charles, Elroy would, would in interviews will bring up Dashiell Hammett as a more direct influence than Raymond Chandler. But in some ways, it almost seems and, and I get that, that the uh, Hammett's a much more economical, you know, tightly packed sentences writer like Elroy. I mean, Elroy takes it to an extreme. But I mean, Chandler, though, I mean, just the atmosphere of Eleanor is so I feel so rooted in what he does, which is almost, you know, it's a really well plotted movie. But atmosphere is so important and atmosphere is such such a when we think of la noir movies and fiction as well atmosphere is matters more than the mysteries in a way i mean you know chandler is, is philip marlowe's uh hard-bitten you know disappointed romantic character kind of staring off into the rainy streets uh, uh as much as 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 who who murdered who and i mean famously in the big sleep there's a there's a murder that even he doesn't sure who committed you know <laughs> yeah. so so in some ways it's not that the plot is secondary but but atmosphere is is one of the defining features to me. And that's kind of, for me, what's missing from, from the film, LA Confidential. I think there's a lot of, I mean, they're trying to th- thread a very thin needle here, which they do extremely well. But, you know, in order to make this this very tight, fast-moving story, you do kind of miss that atmosphere where you're just kind of living in the place and loping around and, and it, it loses the shaggy that shaggy dog quality that i associate with la noir it doesn't really have that it's it's really it's very fast paced um and very well tightly and cleanly plotted it's got all the things that you that that screen screenwriting instructors tell you it should have but to me it kind of misses that atmospheric angle that that I kind of appreciate. One of the things that really distinguishes this from the the normal brand of L.A. Noir is that you've got Ed Exley, who's like pre all of that exhaustion and and diminishment and cynicism with the system. Like he hasn't gotten there yet. And we get to see part of it happen to him over the course of the story. Vincennes is a a character who's actually made the system and the sleeves work for him. So he also like he engages in some cynical behavior, but he's actually he starts out as a very happy guy. And these two guys don't fit into what the usual L.A. Noir pattern. You know, you've got somebody who's sold out and really successfully sold out and somebody who hasn't even been asked to sell out yet. We're we're seeing like three different kind of stages in or at least potential stages in the process of turning into Russell Crowe. <laughs> Yeah, who, who's probably the ends up being the most dignified character of the three, ultimately, right? <laughs> so many know. smacks convincing her. Yeah. Uh, well, he also, I mean, you're talking about a man who like roars and hooks a chair through a window because he wants to kill somebody and has to stop himself from killing somebody. He gets upset. <laughs> yeah, like He's the Hulk hot, gets upset. And, and, and he gets upset about a very specific thing, which is like women being threatened, which makes that moment when he hits her, you know, such a such a big deal. When he sees Susan Lefferts with the the bandages on and you just come storming up to make accusations and assumptions, you know, and hiding outside a parolee's house, you know, waiting for him to start yelling at his wife. Like he has this fixation on saving and protecting women that is 
on the surface admirable, but when you think about it, there's a a seedy underbelly to it. Yeah, you know? it's, it's, yeah I don't think you have to think about it too yeah. much. No, I mean, it, he's scary. So yeah. nice. It's nicely done too, because it's just he realizes he because becomes what he hated. You know, he, yeah. he just sort of you know stared into the abyss and and and, and turned into it at a certain point. I think it's a lesser movie without that moment, as as upsetting as it is. It unifies the story because it, fundamentally, this is about three different people with three different codes, each finding the breaking point in their code, and the breaking point in his code is when he feels he's been betrayed by somebody he loves and trusts and uh, like he has this huge white knight thing about women he has this he's defined so much by his past as all three of them are but we see the exact point where it breaks for him and where he can't maintain it and we see the exact same thing with the other two characters and that's you know it it feels like in some ways like it's a sprawling story because so much is going on but part of what makes it tight is that that really clear parallelism between all three of them well, we haven't talked about our Oscar winner, Kim, Kim Basinger. Um, so maybe we should uh, talk, talk about her. What what uh, what do you make of her uh, character and her, her performance? And, uh, you know, what is the film saying, I guess, about Hollywood through her? I'll start with the performance. I thought it's really good. I know there's people that are kind of down on this performance, but I like it a lot. I think it plays to her strengths. I think that, that sort of, I know she's supposed to be from Arizona, so that maybe the Southern draw doesn't quite make sense, but that sort of, that vulnerability created by that by that southern drawl she has. It's, it's I love really, her voice yeah, in this. Yeah, like I like nice. I, I remember just being like kind of hypnotized by her speaking and and she has like she's not a drug user but she's sort of like this nar- narcoticized yeah. uh, uh, detachment from everything and, mm-hmm. and I think if her the arc of her character is a bit of like coming actually back into into life in some ways you know and not well yeah and yeah. and in the end she leaves and I, I think like the whole point of this character is that she has been hollowed out by this town. She is the the cynicism of Hollywood made flesh, you know, and in the end, she's only able to be a person by leaving. There's blood on your shirt. Is that an integral part of your job? Yeah. Do you enjoy it? When they deserve it. Did they deserve it today? I'm not sure. But you did it anyway. Yeah. Just like the half dozen guys you screwed today. (sighs) Well, actually, it was only two. You're different, Officer White. You're the first man in five years who didn't tell me I look like Veronica Lake inside of a minute. You look better than Veronica Lake. Pierce Patchett. He takes a cut of our earnings and invests it for us. Doesn't let us use narcotics and he doesn't abuse us. Can your policeman's mentality grasp those contradictions? He had you cut to look like Veronica Lake. No. I'm really a brunette, but the rest is me. And that's all the news that's fit to print. It's nice meeting you, officer. As with so many other characters in in L.A. stories, in L.A. stories specifically about fame and either the achieving of it or the struggling and failing to achieve it, she has been turned into an image rather than mm-hmm. a human being. She has been like hollowed out and replaced with this this mask, basically. But she and, wasn't cut. She didn't. <laughs> which just, is, she just dyed which her is, hair. <laughs> I find really, really interesting because there's that repeated emphasis throughout the movie of, you know, yes, I look like this, but this is actually me versus she looks like that, but that isn't actually her. And it's deemed super important as though like being born with the right nose is some sort of like measure of authenticity and it, as if it's important. Well, it's almost like that. The town hasn't gotten to her the way it gets to quite to quite the degree it gets to others. I think it's one, one way that you, you could read that as well. 
I suppose. I mean, if you want to take a, the plastic surgery is really symbolic. I <laughs> I never do really get why Winbud is like working up such a head of steam over like Sue Susan's uh, nose. Why somebody just doesn't say, dude, she's she's had a nose job. Well, I mean, it, it is the early 1950s. Plastic surgery wasn't quite as common as, yeah, as it fair. is now. Like, I, I think going under the knife in 1953 came with a lot more implication of danger and perhaps stupidity than, mm-hmm. it, than it does in today's out, you... out, outpatient surgery. But I mean, uh, <laughs> they are dealing with a lot of danger and stupidity already. Sure, 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 so sure. But, possibly uh, yeah. steering the danger and stupidity yeah. away from I mean, their car. I mean, I am not well versed in the history of plastic surgery. I, <laughs> I, I could be totally wrong. But my instinct says that plastic surgery in 1953 was a, a little bigger of an undertaking than it is today. What fascinates me about Kim Basinger in this film, that whole realm, is that it is the one part part of the movie that feels like going into a movie i mean for one it introduces her by you know she's the there's veronica lake film actually playing in her house but but the fact that she is playing a role you know there's that there's a level of artifice uh to that situation and to that character that that maybe the arc of the film is about taking her out of you know what i'm saying this place where she lives this realm is so separate from everything else in the in, in in the movie separate but connected obviously but but uh but it feels like a different place and almost a different movie when we're with her um th- than we are in any, any other uh, p- part of the film well sure because she's been highly trained to sell a fantasy i mean you asked what this this movie says about hollywood what it says is that like losing yourself in this role like completely recreating yourself for a role is likely to make you lose yourself but it has a really powerful effect on other people and we see that, I think, more than anything with Ed. You know, Bud falls for her, but I think Bud has a, a specific, a fantasy specific to him that he sees in her. Like this this sort of idea of like both purity and like, oh, she's wounded in a way that, that he can come in and, and protect. It's like a, a fairly common fantasy, but it's also specific to the character we've seen. Ed just reacts to her like she's an aphrodisiac. And I, I think that has a lot less to do with who he specifically is and a lot more to do with the fact that she has created this extremely alluring fantasy that that pulls men in head over heels in spite of their best selves. It's not a coincidence that all of the women in this group are made over as movie stars. She's meant to have that star power and that control over men. It's kind of poignant, too, when they go see uh, Roman Holiday as well, because, you know, at this point in 1953, Veronica Lake had been kind of aged into television at that point. And she wasn't really working in movies that much. And and, and uh, Audrey Hepburn was sort of the new model. I mean, a lot of the, the 40s glamour was, was about to become kind of outmoded by what they were seeing on the screen. Yeah, Lana Turner was off dating Johnny Stepanato. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, that in real life, that didn't happen for another four years, apparently. But uh, I mean, that's that's sort of another like little little dig at what the movie is saying about Hollywood and celebrity. You know, Ed Exley's just so smug in the restaurant when he says, you know, a whore cut to look like Lana Turner is still just a whore. And he has to be told that he's looking at the real thing. And it's <laughs> it's a funny moment, but it's also really telling. You know, he can't tell the ersatz model from the real thing. And partially that's because he's naive. Partially that's because he's a stuffed shirt. Partially Partially that's because he's caught up in his own ego and his need to be right. It also says something about how replicable like that uh, the face is, like the face and the clothes. And then suddenly you have a lookalike and you have a product that can be sold. And it's not that different from the real thing. You know, it's like something I was just sort of thinking about with all four of these uh, main characters is that the movie gives you just enough uh, of, you know, mystery 
to each of them to make you completely curious about their past and who they how, how they came to to be at to get to the point they are that we start with them in the movie like uh, you know i mean you think about uh, kim basinger's character um where did she start was she just she was probably a fresh off the bus type and and this is the role i guess that she ended up playing or you know ed exley is is, is getting into the police department as a way of dealing with his father issues involving his father and his father's death and i mean there's there's all these little you know and of course we certainly wonder how where where things went astray for for jack vincennes so it's a nice thing to have that to, to where the film starts us with these characters makes us think about where they've have been and then where it takes us to is uh different from where we start so there's, there's a nice there's an arc we don't see and an arc we do see and it's it's uh it makes the film that, that much richer one of my favorite sequences, one of the real standout sequences in the film, is the big interrogation scene where 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 they've rounded up these African Americans and they're just railroading them through the system, uh, and they've got multiple uh, speakers and devices in each each room, and they're really kind of working the case. But of course, these these men are being set up because who is going to question if if you put a bunch of guns in the back of their car and they've got and they got records and you can kind of plausibly connect them to the scene who's going to question that so they're being set up um which brings me this is a very long-winded way of saying what what do you feel like the film has to say about race i mean i mean in in you know we, we talked about how this was this could have been made you know yesterday surely surely it could in terms of what we're dealing with now um as far as uh, race and police corruption goes well, it's not it's not a film, not a world with a lot of innocence in it. Uh, so it, it seemed true to the world that that these cops would would railroad these guys through, and also that they would be not guilty of this particular crime, but guilty of other crimes too. And, and it's uh, but you know in, in this uh, scene of the other cops uh, faking evidence, you have you know this is a film in nineteen ninety seven. This is this is two years after the O.J. Simpson verdict, mm-hmm. and we have you know here here are the, this is a practice a long standing practice. Uh, there, um, but I also appreciated that, that these were actual criminals, and and we got to look at their criminal world as as, as well. Um, it's not a simple world of good guys and bad guys. I don't know. It's an it's a kind of a simple world of white guys and not white guys. Because you also, I mean, you also have the whole the bloody Christmas thing at the beginning, which is a very much of a piece with it. You bring in a bunch of of Mexican people, and they're right. they're literally just referred to as you know the Mexicans. Yeah. And there's really no evidence that they did what they're being accused of either, that they're the right guys. There's no evidence necessarily of whatever crime they've committed. We actually get to see the lie or confusion or whatever you want to call it about exactly what happened to two cops that were attacked. Like that that story goes through a game of telephone and morphs really, really quickly (laughs) and then suddenly turns into like a brutal beatdown. And attempted murder. I mean, it could have very easily become a lynching, like a a jailhouse lynching Mm -hmm. of six people who might or might not have been the people who like attacked these cops in the first place. And like it's sort of part and parcel with the cynicism of the whole piece. But given the degree to which, you know, you you start off with like, let's beat up a bunch of Mexicans who might or might not have been people who did some crime. And then we move on to let's beat up a bunch of African-Americans who might or might not be the people who did some crime. There's there's not a whole lot of like positivity around race or I mean, it's again, it's a very cynical story and it's a cynical but it's a cynical story in which it, it's got to be hard to be you know, a non-white person watching this movie in which pretty much everybody of color is a both a victim of some kind and except for the rape victim a criminal of some kind 
Yeah, I, I think the I think the takeaway there is is that this is a, a police force driven by racist assumptions, and and sometimes they end up getting the right people, and sometimes they don't. But it's not the main motivation is look to people of other races first, you know, and that's that's uh, uh, it's unpleasant. I do think that scene where the woman is being the rape victim is being kind of wheeled out of the precinct, and you know says that she you know, corroborated the story falsely uh, because she wanted those men who did that to her dead. She said, I did what I had to do for justice. It's it's just a really, it, I'll get more into the idea of justice in the second half, but um, that part in particular struck me in terms of how this uh, movie dealt with race and crime. Yeah, I mean, you kind of get like what she says in that moment is it parallels what uh, Dudley Smith says to Ed Exley towards the beginning of the film. He, you, you can't be a, te- a detective. You can't be a detective if you're not willing to manufacture evidence, if mm-hmm. you're not willing to beat a suspect until he confesses whether he did it or not. Like you're you're informed at the beginning of the film that this police force's idea of justice is manufacturing whatever evidence they need to make sure that they punish someone regardless of who whether it's actually i don't i I should back off on that not regardless of whether it's the right person but if they think it's the right person because he does say you know if you're if you're positive it's the the right person are you are you ready to manufacture evidence not if you need to collar somebody so again it kind of comes back to having an ethos in this case it's just a very corrupt and racist ethos so i want to before we uh, wrap up i wanted to address the very end of the film which is the part of the movie that everyone seems to have problems with at least uh, at the time i don't know if if they still do and they being you i want to know what you think of the way this movie ends um uh whether it works for you or not I, sorry scott i was too young i i like totally missed what the problem people had with the ending was was it just is it just like the kind of quote-unquote happy ending aspect of it or i think, I think so yeah. yeah okay and that it just it brings a little fast to me as well i mean i don't see how Bud's still alive <laughs> for starters, but I don't necessarily want a different ending though at the same time. It is it is a minor key happy ending for sure. Yeah, it did, it did not stick out as badly to me now as I remember it at the time. Because at the time that was like it, that was that was the line among myself and and a lot of my cinephile friends was like, this is a really great movie, and then what the hell happened <laughs> to the end of this thing? This is just it just bombed it in the denouement. Is it just the Bud and Lynn part or what happens with Exley too? I you think can... it's the Bud and I think it's the, yeah. the Bud and Lynn part that, eh, that, that you know I'm I like it. I, yeah. I don't know. Like I'm sorry if that you know makes me a you know not serious enough cinephile or whatever, <laughs> but I mean I, I like a, just a little bit of happy ending and that there is still in this horribly cynical world because how Ed's story ends is a cynical happy ending. I like that yeah. there's kind of a purely happy ending for those two characters, really the only two remaining like living characters at that <laughs> yeah. point. Yeah, they, they're a reward for not being dead. And, and, and I think it fits with the movie's themes and tone that their happy ending is them leaving. They are getting out. They are just leaving this cesspool of a city behind. I'm really divided on the ending, I suppose, because I mean, on one level, not every L.A. noir movie needs to be Chinatown. Not all of them need to go to this like tremendously dark and hopeless place. And I don't think that this movie necessarily warrants a dark and hopeless ending. At the same time, 
I don't know. I I always kind of cast a cynical eye on stories featuring a hooker with a heart of gold whose loyalties are kind of called into question at various points, who kind of maybe she's in it for herself, but maybe she's in it for the love of a good man. And then who in the end is like clearly redeemed by turning out to be like as as gold hearted and like open hearted as you always hoped she would be. Like, I find that actually more cynical than like uh, a Chinatown kind of ending. So like whenever we see because we've seen that trope so many times and it's such a product of this weird wishful fantasy thinking about rescuing, rescuing women from themselves, rescuing women from other men, rescuing women from their choices and especially rescuing women from having sex with men other than the person rescuing her. And maybe it's a thing, too, where it just becomes a a movie at the end. Mm -hmm. You know, it just it seems unreal. It seems like a movie ending. These characters who seemed uh, very specific to us before now you know fulfill those those maybe cliches you're talking about but it wasn't it didn't stick out quite as badly to me this time i felt no. i felt like they they earned it a little bit i object to this ending because it's an ending i i think these characters have a like a long and interesting history ahead of them and clearly we should have seen like eight more sequels <laughs> it should have kept going um, <laughs> james elroy's like endless la confidential series uh, well, that's a good. Uh, the end uh, seems like a good place to end. So uh, let's move on to feedback. Our last show on Iron Man and Captain America: Civil War drew a lot of responses from listeners who have strong opinions on the MCU. They're out there, people. They watch movies about the MCU. What? It's true. Uh, Tasha, uh, do you want to get us started? Sure. Um, this one is from listener D. W. Lindbergh. She writes. I'm as big a fan of Iron Man as anyone, but could you please, please make mention of how the overall plot skeleton of a film is a virtual retread of Batman Begins. I've always found it a little mind-boggling that no one ever brings up this point. And while I admit the plot of Batman Begins might have cribbed from other sources, I think it's important to mention how much of an influence Nolan's 2005 film has had on our current comic book blockbuster culture. In essence, while Iron Man may have kickstarted the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe, it was Batman Begins that actually influenced Iron Man. And Favreau has mentioned as much while prepping for Iron Man. To clarify, here's a summary of each film in a nutshell. The irresponsible son of a dead billionaire philanthropist is captured and imprisoned in a faraway eastern country where he learns the error of his ways. He escapes and returns to the U.S. determined to make a difference. Using his vast fortune to forge an armored suit, gadgets, and a new identity, he launches a crusade against the crime and corruption that threatens to envelop the world as he knows it. He later has a run-in with authority figures who condemn his acts of vigilante justice. A villain is introduced early on as a potential arch-nemesis until it's revealed that this first villain is merely a pawn of the main villain, who is the hero's former friend and mentor. This mentor-slash-antagonist confronts the hero with his plans for world domination and leaves him for dead. The hero, however, is rescued by his loyal butler-slash-servant, regroups, and steals himself for a final confrontation. Yeah. Those, uh, they, they do seem connected, don't they? I, I don't see any similarities. <laughs> I never thought about that. I mean, that. was Stark the Elder a philanthropist? Hmm. He was a weapons manufacturer. Oh, I'm, I'm sure he also gave money to charity. Sure, yeah. why not? We'll, we'll give him that. It's a minor detail. <laughs> there are definitely details in here I don't remember from Batman Begins. I, I think that that movie, unfortunately, has like fallen by the wayside for me under a, a torrent of other Batman stories. So, I mean, this is a pretty damning description. <laughs> there was some discussion on the Facebook page about how a lot of these things are pretty familiar narrative beats from a lot of stories, particularly in the comics realm. And, you know, I'm not necessarily the one to back that up looking in your direction, Keith. <laughs> and I just think the tone 
of Batman Begins is so different from Iron Man. Like, even if you can match up narrative beats, it's such a different movie that I have a hard time saying it owes a major debt to Batman Begins. I think it part might be a function also of Tony Stark and Bruce Wayne being kind of similar characters. I think if there's, mm-hmm. if there's analogs yeah. in their respective comic book universes, and that might be that too as well. You know, uh, is this a problem? You know, I, I, again, I didn't get the tone of this uh, of this email to be damning, really. Yeah. Other than saying it's a total ripoff. Of <laughs> <laughs> but, there uh, are no mean, new ideas. We mean yeah. ripoff in the neutral sense. No, no. In the homage. Uh, but I thought it was a pretty interesting letter. Yeah, uh, for sure. Genevieve, she wants it acknowledged. Uh, we acknowledge. We acknowledge, acknowledge. the similarities. We, very clever. Very clever. <laughs> um, <laughs> Genevieve, you pointed out in, in last episode about the lack of compelling villains in the MCU. I could not name Ultron, for example. <laughs> uh, and listener Jim suggests that it may be an epidemic. Jim writes, the discussion regarding the lack of memorable villains in the MCU made me consider other franchises, and I think the problem extends beyond the MCU. Consider two of the longest-running film franchises, Star Trek and James Bond. Both have their Lokis and Khan and Ernst Stavro Blofeld, respectively, but both also have long stretches where the pickings are awfully slim. Bond has a few more memorable performances, though perhaps that's also a function of having so many more opportunities. Trek, also similarly to Marvel, has seen perhaps its best villains rise from television, where, for example, the Borg and Gal Dukat can become more fleshed out and greater nuance can be given to the character, especially true in the case of Dukat. Perhaps it's actually harder to come up with a Vader or Voldemort for a franchise, especially as they grow in length. I think this is a really interesting observation. And it it got me, like I went back and listened to what we said about villains in the last podcast and then kind of thought about it again in in terms of other franchises. And I really think that one one of the big keys is that so many of the MCU movies in particular and so many comic book movies make the mistake of killing off the villain mm-hmm. as soon as they can. Like the, the very first, the uh, Tim Burton Batman kills off the Joker. And the reason the Joker has endured as a, a frightening character is that he keeps coming back. He keeps doing terrible things. He keeps testing Batman. And Darth Vader eventually dies, but he doesn't die at the end of the first Star Wars. Yeah, uh, this goes to another uh, comment on our Facebook page, which you should be following us on Facebook because there are some really good conversations happening there. How would they do that? Uh, Go to facebook.com slash next picture show. You could probably figure that out. But uh, a commenter there mentioned, and the mention of Vader and Voldemort brings this up, is that sometimes the bad guys have to win. Oh, yeah. You know, like in order for them to seem like a real menace. Yeah. And, and I mean, the Joker is threatening and menacing because he keeps killing people. Yeah. He keeps coming back and killing people. You know, Darth Vader is terrifying because he starts the movie by killing a whole bunch of rebels, you know. And blowing up a planet. <laughs> well, and, yeah, Alderaan, Schmalderaan, you know. There's people on there. What was that What was that planet doing with its life anyway? I, I think you also just have to com- commit to investing time and energy in conceiving uh, the villain just as um, forcefully as you would your hero. I mean, you know, the Joker in uh, the, the Nolan, you know, Batman, that's, you know, I think that's right from the beginning, that bank robbery scene, we get a sense of what he's like. And, um, you know, we get some scenes with him that really kind of, you know, establish his, his brutality and his nihilism and um, make him a really frightening character. I think also just time, too. I mean, we're already talking about how long these films are. And, and, and you know, just a matter of do you want to spend time with the hero or do you want to spend time with the villain? And 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 uh, I, I think one just just sort of the economics of of, of uh, running times. You know, one has to get, ends up getting the short end of the stick. 
Yeah. You know, uh, X-Men Apocalypse is a movie that spends a lot of time with its villain, and it's really badly used time. It's really yeah. boring time. Hmm. It's kind of the same as with uh, Avengers Age of Ultron. Is You spend a lot of time listening to Ultron explicate himself without ever explaining himself. Like yeah. He talks a lot, but he doesn't say anything. I like James Spader as Ultron, though. He's, he's I like the, so I like condescending. The, I, like I the don't voice. remember any of this I like stuff. the voice, and I like the animation, but yeah. his plan makes no sense. No, you know, You've got to have some sort of sense of you're like, gonna have an age <laughs> that, belong, that belongs to you you better have a clear plan so as always we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations we had another really uh great uh email about uh, the theme of loss in these uh, marvel films that you can find on our facebook page uh to reach us uh you can leave a short voicemail at 773 234 9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net we may feature your response on a future episode or post it on facebook for discussion and that's it for this episode of the next picture show in the second half we'll bring in the nice guys and examine its comic twist on tinseltown troubles You'll also get to hear this. This weird, grossly sexualized rosebud moment, in a way. Look for that later this week. Or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we leave you with two words. Rolo Tomasi. You got to accentuate to positive, eat limb, mine hit the negative and latch on to the affirmative, don't mess with Mr. In-Between. You got to spread joy up to the maximum, bring gloom down to the minimum, have faith or pandemonium libel.